Our text this morning, once again, is from Ephesians. We're crawling along at a snail's pace here, but I'm okay with that because there's so much richness here for us that we really are, are in a position where we need to understand, to see things are right so that we can live as befits the children of God in this wicked and perverse generation. You can't do that if you don't know what your privileges are. You can't do that if you don't know that Jesus is worthy. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, this is the word of God. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, um, it's our practice here at Tabernacle EPC in general to take a book or a significant portion of the scriptures like the Sermon on the Mount or the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus or something like that, and to work through it in a, in a systematic way so that what is said this week will build on what was said last week, and what is said next week will build on what is said today. And one of the reasons that I'm committed to, the, to this practice is that it lets the Spirit of God set the agenda. I could, I could, there are, from time to time, people will come to me and they say, you should preach about this, or you should talk about that, or this is a problem. And, and there are times, sometimes, where I will pause and will address a specific concern. But, but if, if you let yourself fall into that habit, you find yourself just chasing problems, and, uh, and then other things don't get addressed. And so in the, the balance of, of the ministry of the church, we should simply just unfold the scriptures in a systematic way, trusting in the providence of God to bring the people of God who need to hear a, what a specific passage says to, to the place at the right time where the words are just unfolded. And I've, I've had that happen over and over and over again sometimes um, it's funny, sometimes it's sad, sometimes it's joy. I can remember in my church in, in Sturgis, um, I had a, a family who, um, whose children lived in Central America. The, the son had married a, a woman from, um, I think she was from Honduras. And they lived down there and they would come back at Christmas time. And they would stay for a month or six weeks and, and they, would bring, they would come to church, of course. Well, well one year they when Christmas time rolled around, everybody in the family disappeared and nobody came to church. And, I, and, and the guy's brother was, was one of the elders and I said, what's going on there? And he said, well, he said, the last time he was up from Honduras, the son was up from Honduras, 
you spoke on something and you so completely nailed him to the wall that he decided the only explanation for that was if you and his dad were colluding together so that you could preach this message at him while he was in the United States. And he got so mad about that, he said, I'm never setting foot in that church again. I had no idea what was going on, but apparently I just cut him to the quick. And, uh, and nobody else got cut to the quick, so I don't think it was a particularly offensive problem. But that was the only explanation he could come up with, was that I had been colluding with his dad to, to blast him with some message when he got back to the United States. And it's like, well, no, that's the Spirit of God. And so we let the Spirit of God set the agenda, and the whole counsel of God will be proclaimed in the balance of the preaching of the Word. Well, last week I argued from the scriptures that God has a plan, and his plan is to fill the earth with people who know him and know his glory because he is their whole life. And they live just to know him and just to love him and just to serve him. Furthermore, I argued from the scriptures that you, the born-again people of God, are God's chosen instrument to accomplish that goal, the goal of filling the whole earth with His glory and the knowledge of the glory of, the Son, of, of God. You are, says Jesus, the salt of the earth, that which was, would preserve from decay. You are the light of the world, that which would illuminate the darkness of the world. You, you, you are important. And what you do matters, and what you fail to do matters. You can do real damage to the cause of Christ, or you can really help it to advance in our day. Now, that doesn't mean that you can defeat God's purposes. You're never going to tie God down and defeat His purposes. That's what the the Jews thought they could do in the time of Jeremiah. They were like, God will never destroy Jerusalem. We're at the temple of the Lord here. He's the, if, if the temple fell, everyone would think that God wasn't really God, and, and our, our enemies would win, and they would think their gods were better than ours, and God would never do that. And so we're, we can do whatever we want because the temple of the Lord is here. And then they found out they were wrong about that. You can do real harm. If you, if you want a biblical example of that principle, just think about the crucifixion and the events surrounding the crucifixion and the conduct of some of the disciples on Good Friday. And their conduct of some of them was awful. And yet they were used by God to bring about a mighty victory on Easter morning. But the fact that God won a victory on Easter morning didn't let, for instance, Judas off the hook did it. So what you do matters. What you do counts. God uses it. When you pray, for instance, and pray effectively, things happen that would not have happened otherwise. And for instance, the book of James tells us that clearly. In James chapter 4, he says, you have not because you ask not, and when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your pleasures. Notice that James doesn't say you have not because it's not the will of God that you have. Now, clearly, there are times when we ask for things and God says, no, I have something else in mind. And we see that with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we also see it with Paul and the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but that's not the norm. 
You see, God has intentionally set up your life to be one of prayer-filled, constant interaction with Him where you sense His delight in you as you delight in Him. And in this constant interaction, you present your requests to Him. And He says, yes, yes, yes. And much is wrought by prayer in such a life with God. And it it makes God happy to dwell with you like that day in and day out, and and it will make you happy too. Which leads to the last point that I made last week. Last week I argued that we could effectively sum up what God wants you to do in order that he can accomplish his purposes through you in this way. God wants you to, quote, arrange your life in such a way that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. Now, that's the Christian life in a nutshell. That's, That's the life of rest with Jesus in the easy yoke with the light burden where you're anxious about nothing, but in prayer you let your requests be made known to God, and in so doing, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus because you've given over your life, you've given over your body to God as a living sacrifice, and you are utterly confident that Jesus can and will take care of you and of the things that are important to you, and He will do so better than you can take care of you and the things that are important to you. I love that song that we just sang together, Is He Worthy? I mean, is He really worthy? Can he be trusted? Yes, he is. He is powerful. He is good. He is wise. He has your best interests at heart. He is worthy of your confidence. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your patient endurance in the situations in life that are so painful. And you wonder, can any good ever come out of this? Or am I just crippled somehow for life? And Jesus says, no, be at peace. I've got things going on you don't know. And I love you. And I'm doing good to you, even in the midst of all the evils that are in the world. He's worthy. He can take better care of you than you can take care of you. So if you aim at that kind of life, if you aim at a life where you just are enjoying Jesus day in and day out in a life of peace and joy and confidence, you will naturally and effectively put into practice all those other things that the Bible talks about that are an integral part of the spiritual life. You will, for instance, pray. You'll become a person of prayer, and you'll, and you'll become a person of prayer with the correct motives, because motives, especially in prayer, count for a lot, as James 4 also shows us. Now, all of these things are not something that happens all at once. It's something that we grow into, and that's what, what today's text makes plain that we are growing up, and that growth is a process, and that it sometimes takes longer. I mean, I don't know, something happened to children in in the modern era, in the postmodern era. It used to be like 
do you remember when you wanted to grow up, like you couldn't wait to grow up, like you couldn't wait to get your driver's license and all that kind of stuff like that? And kids today are like, eh, I don't wanna learn how to drive. Eh, I don't wanna leave home. Eh, I don't wanna get a job and be responsible. They, they don't wanna grow up. I wanted to grow up, I just, I just think it's bizarre. It, it, it really is, it could, some of them could care less if they encountered all those things that were so important to you and I in our, in our day. But, but growth is a process, and that's what today's text makes plain. What are some mile markers along the way to growth? And we're only gonna have time to deal with one of them this week, we'll deal with the others next week. What are the mile markers along the journey to growth? Well, the first is a mature stability. The first mile marker is a mature stability. And Paul talks about that, for instance, in verse 14. He says, we will no longer be blown around by every wind of doctrine like children. That's what he says in verse 14. Now you think about a child. It's in the nature of a child to be easy to influence, to be easy to manipulate. It's in the nature of a child to be prone to move to extremes because if a little bit is good, a lot must be better. You know, a child is the kind of, it will reason like this. If it's good to put the pizza in the oven for 20 minutes at 350, then it must be better to put it in at 700 degrees for 10 minutes. And then you end up with a smoking pizza, okay? But that's how, child, that's how children think. And, and, and Children are just prone to extremes and prone to foolishness, and so are baby Christians in spiritual things. And Paul says, we want Christians who are growing up, who are growing up to become stable and who will continue to build on that stability. Evangelical Christianity in our day is remarkably unstable, and there's good reasons for that. Um, it, it's fad-driven, for instance. And, and, and the reason it's fad-driven is because there are lots of big companies that are, are, are wanting to make some money off of you. And, and if they can bring up one fad after another and hype one thing after another, well, they can keep the money flowing because you'll continue to buy their books and their curricula and their videos and all those other things. You, you have to come up with something new all the time to market to people if you're in business. Over the course of my career in pastoral ministry, I'm, I'm, I'm doing about 30 years at this point now between unordained and ordained ministry. And over the course of my career in pastoral ministry, I've seen us be seeker sensitive, purpose driven, rich Christians in an age of hunger, who were praying like Jabez, who are living our best life now, all the while fireproofing our marriages and visiting the shack. And it's been just one fad after another. And it's created in us a hunger for novelty and for the new. C.S. Lewis in his Screwtape Letters talks about this. He talks about this as a trick of the devil. And Screwtape is, is writing to Wormwood and, and he's talking about this, this um, this intentional strategy from hell to cause people to demand novelty all the time and to be horrified by what he calls, quote, the same 
old thing. Listen to what he says. The horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart. It's an endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. You see, the problem is that the truth usually is the same old thing, isn't it? Because we serve a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so our job is not to find some new thing, it's to explore the ancient things. It's to ask for the ancient paths, ask for the good way, to wait for the Spirit of God to whisper in our ear, this is the way, walk ye in it. Now, in every age, there are different errors that will predominate because Satan is at work finding some new thing. And that means that the body of truth that God reveals to us is being attacked at different points in different ages of history. And if you read enough history, you you see very often you read old books that were so important in the 1950s or so important in the 1930s or so important at the turn of the century. And they're very dated now. And the reason they're very dated is because the truth was being attacked at a different point in those days. And the truth is being attacked in our day in some unique ways. And so we must learn and present the truth in those areas that are being attacked most intensely in our day. For instance, in our day, one of the grave sins is what I would like to call American individualism. And that's the idea that I'm not under authority. Nobody can tell me what to do. I'm perfectly wise and competent to run my own life. And I don't need nobody about nothing about nothing. And I'm just going to exist all by myself. I don't need anybody. And, And that manifests itself in many ways. One of the ways it manifests itself is that it is considered obvious in our day that you own your body. And therefore, you can do whatever you want with your body as long as you don't injure someone else while you're doing whatever it is that you want to do. And injury to another person is generally only thought of in either physical or psychological terms. Now, that idea became normalized and became widespread in the 1960s. I own my own body, and nobody can tell me what to do with my body because it's my body, mine, 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 and you can't tell me what to do with it. Well, when that idea became normalized in the 1960s, it became the the necessary precursor for the sexual revolution because the sexual revolution of the 1960s wouldn't have been possible without widespread acceptance of this idea. And then with that idea firmly in place, then things like abortion on demand, no-fault divorce, heterosexual promiscuity, homosexuality, polyamory, transgenderism, and now transhumanism, which you aren't hearing much about now, but will soon. It's the next cultural battlefield. All of those things become inevitable because if my body is mine to do with as I see fit, then there's no basis upon which to criticize what I do with my body except bigotry and an inappropriate sense of wanting to control other people. So whatever I do with my body, either privately as an individual or with other consenting adults, so long as I don't harm them physically or psychologically, 
That's, there's, no, there's no way to criticize that. There's no basis to criticize that. It's interesting because um, I read about a couple of years ago, and I, I didn't go looking for it, I read about a, a story from Germany where a person arranged on the internet to meet with another person because they wanted to be killed and eaten by a cannibal. And so the, they arranged this meeting, they got killed, they got partially eaten, the police came and arrested the person who killed and ate the other person, and he, he said, no, I've got papers here that show consent, here's a video, this person wanted me to do this to him, so what crime have I committed? And there was a real constitutional crisis in Germany because this crazy person wanted to be killed and eaten by somebody, and it's his body, it's his life. So why should you punish the person that did what he wanted to do? And so there was this like, what, what do we do here? Because people should be able to do what they want with their bodies, and he wanted his to be murdered and eaten. So why, why would we punish the person who did what he wanted him to do? That's how sick, that's how weird our world has gotten. And so one of the tasks today even though Christians accept this logic implicitly, one of the tasks of the church today is to show that we actually don't own our own bodies, that God owns our bodies, and God can tell us what to do with our bodies because they're His bodies, not ours. And this is true of both saved people and lost people. God owns them all. You know why God can't murder? Because all lives are His. So he can't take a life that belongs to someone else. Because all lives are his. All souls are his. All bodies are his. He is the owner of it all. Your body does not belong to you. It was entrusted to you as an instrument to glorify God. And furthermore, there are ways that you can hurt another person that are more than simply inflicting bodily or emotional harm. Indeed, the most profound way that you can hurt another person doesn't involve bodily harming them at all, or even necessarily emotionally harming them. You can injure their soul. And according to God's word, that is actually the most profound damage that you can do to another person is to injure their soul. And you can do that with their full cooperation and permission. If you engage with another person in a sinful act, even if they are enthusiastic participants, you damage their soul. And we must stand on God's eternal truth, which says, among other things, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. And we're told why this is true. Because your body, says Paul, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. That's a nice song. Who's playing that song on their phone? <laughs> that's, that's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 19 through 20. And that's just one place among many where God's truth is, is being attacked and, and then disregarded in our day. And there are many places, and our job is to think clearly about that and to hold up the truth that is so unpopular and to endure the hatred and the venom and the bile and the criticism that will come our way for daring to believe what is uh, counter to the orthodoxy of our day. 
among the worldlings. This leads to another issue. Many people come to church only expecting to be agreed with and to, be, and to hear parroted back to them from the pulpit what they already think is true. In other words, they don't come to learn. But you see, that can only be an appropriate strategy if you know everything there is to know about God and you have absolutely no errors in your knowledge. And I'm pretty confident that I don't have that problem. I don't know everything there is to know, and I'm not confident that my theology and my thoughts about God are, are not without some error somewhere. I'm always trying to compare things and grow and reevaluate. I had a tremendous time of reevaluation during hospice, and it turned out to be very healthy, but, but it was uncomfortable for a while. So from time to time, I might assert things that push your buttons, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. If I'm doing my job, I'll be challenging you, not from my own biases and my own presuppositions, but I'll be challenging you from a close study of the Scriptures. And if you don't like what I say, don't just go, well, I don't care what that passage says. I know I'm right. No, no. Go to the Scriptures and study them. Bring your views to the Bible and let the Bible correct them if need be. Don't just look for writers and thinkers who agree with you, but examine carefully the arguments of those who don't agree with you. Be honest, be fair, be open-minded, and if you come out on the other side still believing what you believed at first after an honest test, then you will have gained two very valuable things. Number one, you will be even more secure and at rest in your own view. And number two, you will have some sense of appreciation for those who disagree with you. You'll be more charitable towards them because you will see that they are thoughtful, honest people who are wrestling with the same scriptures that you are. They aren't idiots. They aren't evil and perverse. They're thoughtful people who have reached a different conclusion than you. You know, one of the things I learned, and it, I didn't learn it in the, in the spiritual or religious sphere, I actually learned it in the sports sphere. I used to live in Cincinnati, and, uh, and that's where Pete Rose had the best of his career. Now, he disgraced himself and, and all that, but, but Pete Rose was a magnificent baseball player. And there was w- one thing that I just loved and respected about Pete Rose, When they asked him, Pete, why are you such a good all-around player? He said, most guys come to practice and they work on things they're already good at because that's pleasant to them. That feeds their ego. And so they get better at things that they're already good at. He said, I come to practice and I work on things that I'm bad at. And that makes me a better player. And, 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 and it's hard on my ego, sometimes it's humiliating, whatever, but I work on what I'm bad at and I make progress. And I thought, that is wisdom from a guy like Pete Rose. Work on what you're bad at, work on what you're weak at. So I made that kind of one of my life's philosophies that whatever I stink at, I'm gonna work on. And I'm just gonna try and set my ego aside. I might work on it where you're not looking because I don't wanna be laughed at any more than you do. 
But it's, it's, it's actually pretty good for me to be laughed at. It, it keeps my ego in check. But I'm going to work on whatever I'm bad at. I'm going to work on whatever I'm ignorant of. I'm going to work on the places where there's tension points, where I don't understand. Instead of just going and rehashing what I already know, what I'm already good at, what I already like, just polishing my mirror, so to speak. And I, I commend that practice to you. You, you know, don't, don't, don't spend all your time rehashing what you know or what you think you know. Go after stuff that you don't know. Don't spend your time rehashing what you're good at. Go after stuff you're not good at. And, and, and you'll grow that way. That's just a, a good practice. So, so you'll be more charitable then towards people if you do that. The next thing that we need to learn, though, in our, in our growth, in our process of maturing and becoming complete, the next thing we need to learn is that not all aspects of God's truth are equally weighty and critical. There are some issues that are more important than others. For instance, the virgin birth and the divine nature of Jesus Christ and his sin-defeating death on the cross and the resurrection of Christ and the inerrancy of the Scriptures, those are doctrines of first importance. There is no room for disagreement on these. You, can, you can't be a Christian without believing in these. And a church cannot remain a Christian church if it compromises on these. And loved ones, many have. That's what the mainline denominations have done. They've compromised on all of those things, and look where they are today. But there are other issues which are important, and they're worthy of charitable debate among Christians of goodwill, but they don't rise to the level of breaking fellowship among Christians. And we should, even if we can't, for whatever reason, exist in the same congregation with these brothers and sisters in Christ, we should always be charitable towards them. We should always recognize them as brothers and sisters in Christ. So, for instance, I, I'm a, a Presbyterian minister, obviously, and I sincerely believe that the doctrines which are contained in the Westminster Confession and the catechisms are true and they are biblical. Now, among those doctrines are things like infant baptism or the doctrine of election and predestination. And I used to spend a great deal of time arguing for the truth of those doctrines in various venues. That was really important to me at one point in time. It's not important to me anymore. Not because I don't think those doctrines are important or because I've ceased to believe them. It's just that I realized, first of all, it was a waste of time because I, I never, hardly ever convinced anybody else. And second of all, that I wasn't always doing it with what I'd call a, a charitable heart. I wanted to be right, and I wanted you to admit that I was right. I wanted to crush you with my logical arguments until I had backed you into a corner and you were whimpering for mercy saying, John Calvin, John Calvin, John Calvin. I wanted, you to, I wanted that to happen, right? And that's just not important to me anymore. I mean, I'm happy to answer questions about them. I'm happy to have an ironic discussion about them. But you don't have to believe those things to be a Christian, obviously. You don't even have to believe those things to be a member of this church, though you do have to believe them to be an officer or an elder or a deacon. But here's the deal. From time to time, those things are going to come up. 
And sometimes these issues are going to arise in the course of, for instance, working our way systematically through the scriptures. Sometimes they'll come up during our confession of faith time where we're reading a catechism or something like that. Uh, sometimes they'll, you know, we'll, we'll baptize a baby up front here and you'll be forced to be in, at least have that up in your face and to wrestle with that. And when those things come up, I will not be shy about talking about them. I will not be shy about upholding them and carefully explaining why it is that we do as we do. But I'm not interested in grinding anybody under my heel or trying to browbeat them into conformity. On the other hand, if you don't believe those things, but you're choosing to abide with us here at Tabernacle and build a life together with us at Tabernacle, you should expect that they're going to come up from time to time, and you should understand that we are not going to rearrange the official doctrine of this church just because you don't agree with it. I mean, I love you, but no. You, you don't have that authority. You don't have that right. You wouldn't, for instance, join a Baptist church and insist that they start baptizing infants. You wouldn't join a Catholic church and say, okay, let's stop saying all this nonsense about the Virgin Mary. You wouldn't join a Wesleyan church and demand that they preach predestination. You wouldn't join an Assemblies of God church and insist that they stop speaking in tongues. So why is it that people think a Presbyterian church can be poked and prodded and shaped into whatever it is they want it to be? Well, they have only been able to do so in the past because Presbyterian churches have abandoned their identity in terms of their confessional standards and they didn't believe their own theology by the beginning of the 20th century. And so starting in the early 20th century and continuing right up until certain Presbyterian groups suddenly rediscovered their heritage in the 70s and 80s and fell in love with it again, these doctrines were not upheld. And a bunch of other stuff just came in and filled the void. But now things are different. With the, the doctrines of grace, as we call them, are now being held up again in our day. And men like Martin Lloyd-Jones and Sinclair Ferguson and Eric Alexander, they rose in influence in Britain because of this. And on our side of the pond, men like R.C. Sproul and Dr. John Gerstner and Jim Boyce and Steve Brown and Dr. D. James Kennedy, they also rose in influence here in America, teaching and preaching these things. And along with them, there were also Baptists like John Piper and Alistair Begg and Al Mohler. And there were Anglicans like John Stott and Jim Packer and Dick Lucas who were also teaching these things. And these glorious things began to be upheld and they began to be taught again with growing confidence and growing conviction. And I am the beneficiary of all of that. And I love these things. I love these doctrines of grace. They are precious to me. It is my deepest desire that you would love them too. And I recognize that some of you just aren't going to do that. And that's okay. But these things are not a club with which we beat others over the head. They are not a means of smarmy pride through which you pharisaically convince yourself of your own righteousness and superiority. They are not a list of learning requirements so that you can tick off some boxes somewhere and feel good about your spiritual and intellectual development. These doctrines are a blueprint for a life of goodness and peace and joy and security because you recognize yourself to be in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God who has set his electing love on you before he even spoke the earth 
into existence. You know what I believe? I believe that empires rose and flourished and decayed and fell for you, to produce you, to bring you here now and to lead you from here to glory forever. I believe that Almighty God proclaimed his will by the harp of David and the pen of Luke for you. I believe that Christ Almighty left his glory and he sweat and he bled in agony for you. I believe that the sun was darkened and the earth shook for you. I believe that spirits of light and spirits of darkness are here right now taking an anxious interest in the smallest of your actions, the smallest of your words, the smallest of your thoughts. I believe that angels feel a holy jealousy and long to look into the mysteries that are yours by divine right. The words of Jesus in the Gospels seem to indicate that most people who have ever lived and died will be lost. They're on the broad road instead of entering through the narrow gate and taking the straight path. And many who claim his name in this world will come to him on the last day and hear, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. So on the basis of texts like that, when you consider the whole mass of humanity, it's only a very small percentage that God redeems and saves. And that's true whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist, right? It's only a very small percentage. And I believe with my whole heart that what it says in Reformed theology when we teach that Jesus didn't die to secure potential salvation for everyone, he died to secure actual salvation for that tiny number of people who would be with him in glory, even though when you get there it looks like a great tribe because it's spread across all of time. But he, he, he got actual salvation for his elect in other words, he didn't die so that you might be saved. He died to save you. He accomplished it. Redemption was accomplished and applied for all of his elect when he said his last word on the cross, it is finished. That's what he did. That's what I believe. Now, you don't have to believe that. I understand if that's offensive to you. I, I, I deeply understand why that's offensive to you. But that's what I believe. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. And if that's right, that means that all of this, the universe, the earth, the sun and the moon and the stars, the angels and the demons, the fall of man, the choosing of Abraham to become a nation which would bring forth the Christ, the giving of the law through Moses, all of the writings of the prophets, all the suffering of Israel, the incarnation of Jesus himself, the rise of Babylon, and then Persia, and then Alexander the Great, and then Rome, the long rise of Europe, the Dark Ages, the defeat of the Muslims at the Battle of Tours, 
the founding of America with all the good she's done to some and all the evil she's inflicted on others, all of that and whatever comes next for however long human history lasts, all of that is for you as the elect of God. That, it was designed to bring about you. That's why there's history, for your benefit. One writer put it this way, God's aim in human history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with God himself as its primary sustainer and its most glorious inhabitant. That's what we're headed for. If you belong to Jesus Christ, whether you think you're predestined or you chose to get there yourself, that's where you're headed to that state of being, because that's what God is going to do. He's going to bring about a situation where the only people that are around are people who are good and who are loving and who love God and who love each other. And we're going to exist forever in the unveiled presence of God, worshiping him and serving him and doing all these wonderful things that he's purposed for us to do in a new heavens and a new earth forever where there's no death, there's no tears, there's no pain, there's no sorrow. That's what he wants to do. And that's what he's going to do. And you, if you belong to Jesus, get to be a part of it forever. Now, if you don't belong to Jesus this morning, why not? Why not? Why would you pass up on that? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen.